Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Titus, chapter 1. Hear now God's Word. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, a true son in our common faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed or quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not, for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God. But in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. We are three Sundays out from beginning the Advent season, so I thought I would try to cover the epistle to Titus during this time. There are three chapters Uh, 46 verses, actually each chapter is is about 15 verses, this one is 16. 951 words in the epistle to Titus, just to give you some comparison. Um, There are 4,600 words in the first chapter of a church-friendly family. So the whole book of Titus is less than a fourth of a chapter of one of my books. Um, It's probably shorter than this sermon, too. So it is clear that it takes many more words for me to communicate far less content than what Paul has to say in this letter to Titus. This means, however, that Titus is packed full of vital information that you and I must pay careful attention to. This is a short letter on how to have a sound and orderly church, which in turn has a powerful impact Uh, powerful gospel impact on the world. Uh, Many of you know Pastor Wilson has the reputation of saying it like it is, especially in what he calls no quarter November. Well, it's November, and I am an amateur, but I think I'll give it a try in these next three sermons. The Bible, though, doesn't give us quarter any time. 
And I think that's why so few people actually read it. There is one matter that we must all settle in our own hearts and in our own minds from the very beginning, and that is stated in verse 2. God cannot lie. God's word abides forever. Jesus is the embodiment of the truth. Now, this might seem obvious, but I see many Christians waffle when confronted with challenges and difficulties and decisions. Some of these difficulties are personal. They come from within. And some are from the outside. They come from the culture around us. Perhaps we are a little bit embarrassed about the Bible and what it has to say about all kinds of things. For example, hell, sin, repentance, Sex, marriage, men, women, children, education, worship, abortion, government, church discipline, creation, etc. In fact, we could go on and on since the Bible speaks to every area of life and the world often doesn't like what it has to say. So I ask you, are you embarrassed about what it has to say? C.S. Lewis observed that if you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will get neither comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin, and in the end, despair. So we are sometimes, if not often, tempted to shrink back to remain silent or to compromise because we might fear men more than we fear God. Pretty soon we are being tossed by every wind of doctrine, every current fad, every popular ideology like giant waves. They overwhelm us and we are then tempted to give in. And I think just as one example of a long list of examples, the current woke movement has been a case study in this kind of thing. So we must all begin by doing what Peter says, sanctify the Lord in your hearts. Set him apart. Okay, He is the Lord. Jesus is Lord. And I'm asking you, have you done that? Have you said He is the boss of me. I believe everything he says. I obey him. I think about all the issues of life the way he teaches me to think about them. Indeed, let God be found true, though every man a liar. This is the difference between true believers and unbelievers. Jesus draws this line unequivocally in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, starting in verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, not, uh, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father 
you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I, Jesus, tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell you, if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. So every one of us must start here. And resolve to hear the words of Jesus and to do them so that we will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain descended and the floods came and they are coming and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. That's where we start. Paul opens this short letter to Titus by declaring that he is a slave and a messenger of truth. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began but has in due time manifest his word through preaching which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Paul is fully committed. He is all in with the faith and his belief in the truth. This is true. And this truth lines up, he says, perfectly with godliness. This is not some abstract thing. It doesn't just produce... Uh, an intellectual faith. It's not just about some theology in a book. This is truth that has an impact on how we live. Any so-called truth that does not produce godliness is a half-truth, and a half-truth is a lie. So in other words, don't tell me that you believe in Jesus and the Bible and the Christian faith and then live like that's not true. The world might think you're crazy for believing in Jesus. In fact, it does. But there ought not be any question in their mind when they look at you or when they look at your marriage or when they look at your children or how you work or how you talk or how you dress. There should be no question whatsoever that you believe the Bible is true. And you're not ashamed of it. Your godliness, your Christ-likeness points to the truth of the gospel. This will be a critical point in this short letter. I read an article the other day from The Guardian, a liberal magazine, which described the new Speaker of the House this way. And while there are things I don't know yet about Mike Johnson, but I thought it was interesting that in this hit piece, they were horrified that he actually believed the Bible. Here's what they said. The new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, knows how he will rule according to his Bible. 
When asked on Fox News how he would make public policy, he replied, quote, well, go pick up a Bible off your shelf and read it. That's my worldview. But it's taking time for the full significance of that statement to sink in. Johnson is, in fact, a believer in scriptural originalism, the view that the Bible is the truth and the sole legitimate source for public policy. Are you horrified? Paul recognized that truth and godliness were the only things that could provide hope to the world, to anybody. That's why it was good news. Since our eternal hope rests on the eternal promise of the God who cannot lie. This world doesn't like the answers God's given because they want to be their own God. They want to do it their way. I can't wait till I can go do whatever I want to do. Nobody can tell me what to do. Well, be careful what you ask for. Because your ideas have consequences too. And if they're not the truth, if it turns out they're a lie, the end result will be a disaster for you and probably for a lot of other people too. So we have been called, remember, as Christians to deny ourselves. That's the starting place. To take up our cross and to follow him. To do what he says. He knows better. He's God. In other words, we move out and we move forward with certainty. Isn't this exactly what Abraham was commanded, uh, commended for after God had promised? Listen to Romans chapter 4. Our father Abraham. Therefore, it is of faith, that is, he believed, that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed or descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him who, whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through, through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what, he, what God had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him as righteousness. Paul then reminds Titus, his spiritual son, that in due time, God manifested his word through preaching. To make manifest is to make visible or known what had been hidden and unknown. And as we're going to see, the preacher has an obligation to deliver the word of God 16 ounces to the pound. This is why qualified leaders in the church are so essential. But let me remind you that you have an equal obligation to do as the Bereans did, which is to receive the word with all readiness of heart and to never grow dull of hearing. That is your job. 
That's what Christ has called you to. Eagerness, no dullness. So you should come here to genuinely hear and receive the true word with eagerness. If you do, then you too, like Paul said to Titus, because we have a common faith, you will have grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody need grace and peace? Do you need mercy? N.T. Wright comments, the two central blessings of the gospel, grace and peace. Grace speaks of God as the source of all the blessings we enjoy, and peace summarizes those blessings, indicating the primary reconciliation between God and man and the secondary reconciliations between one person or community and another. Now Paul turns to the point of this letter, which is to set in order the essential matters of the church. And that's going to begin with leadership. We're going to see next week we're going to look at older women, younger women, older men, younger men, and their places in the church. But he's going to begin with the leadership. For this reason, he says to Titus, I left you in Crete, this island, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. And then he comes now to give the qualifications for the kinds of men he wants to be appointed. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop or elder must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, Not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. So for a church to do what it needs to do, there must be order. And in order for there to be order, there must be good leaders. Paul, after laying out several rules for the church in Corinth, says, For God is not the author of confusion or disorder, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And so a plurality of elders is the means that God has ordained. We see that develop in Exodus chapter 18 under Moses. It is developed further in the synagogues. And now... It is being emulated and implemented in the churches, and thus Paul calls on Titus to appoint elders in every city or every church. There's a church in each city. Um, William Hendrickson points out that these men who will occupy such an important position must meet three groups of requirements. So negative, uh, first, positively, has to have a good reputation. Uh, again, blameless, uh, husband of one wife, faithful children, and so forth. Verses 6 and 7. And then second, negatively, he must not be self-willed, quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. Uh, Verse 7b. And then third, he must demonstrate in word and deed a desire to be a blessing to others. Therefore, he's he's hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, and so forth. These three groups of requirements pertain to people who, as to their age and dignity, are called elders, and as to their task, 
are called overseers. Now the text says these elders must be blameless, but it thankfully does not say they must be perfect. We see this kind of language used when the Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So every elder must know that he falls short at many points. Otherwise, he would lack honesty and humility and therefore be disqualified. But a blameless man is one who walks with God, who confesses his sins when he recognizes them and relies upon the grace of God. Nevertheless, his reputation is that of godliness, which is clearly reflected in the way he lives and talks in his family, in the church, and in the world. These men, these are men who will necessarily need to confront sin in others on a regular basis, and therefore they have already they must have already confronted sin in themselves. These understand the gospel, the good news. And you will recall what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom, notice he doesn't say, I was the chief. He says, I am the chief. Nevertheless, he could also say in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Elders must be men who love the church, just as good husbands love, a good husband loves his wife, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. An elder must be the kind of father who loves his children and sacrifices for them. And that's why his own personal family is a microcosm of the larger family, which is the church. Paul also recognizes that strong, secure, mature leadership in the church is essential because he knows what kind of challenges the church is going to face. He knows what's coming their way. And it'll be the task of the elders to recognize and to combat these kinds of things. So let's look at this list of concerns and warnings beginning in verse 10. He says, There are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So Paul, Titus, and these future elders that are about to be appointed primarily are going to have to deal with the Judaizers. But there have been and there are many other forms of insubordinate, idle talkers and deceivers both inside and outside the church. The Judaizers, remember, were a faction of Jewish Christians, both of Jewish and non-Jewish origins, who regarded the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, along with their own perversions of these, as still binding on Christians. And it will be the responsibility of the elders. Notice the strong language here. It will be the responsibility, Paul says to Titus, of these elders that you appoint, you, Titus yourself, and them, to stop their mouths. To shut them up. 
And so the reason is because they are subverting entire households. They are creating factions in the church. They are creating divisions, which is a form of death and separation. They're tearing apart the communion of the church. And you must not let that occur. This is something that can be done with a wide range of topics, including food, clothing, liturgy, all of which are good things in themselves. Anything, though, that divides the body between the ordinary and the super-spiritual people is subversive. Anything can become a form of virtue signaling. Look at me. Look how spiritual I am. Don't you want to be part of this club? We are all tempted to these things. Elders must be vigilant to bust up such factions, to nip them in the bud, because they are a threat to the peace and the purity of the church. There are any number of things that people should have liberty to do, but they may not use that liberty to subvert the church or her leadership. To be subversive is to undermine the power and the authority of the system or the institution And in this case, it's the church and her leaders. Now, some of these who were in Crete were doing this, he says, for dishonest gain. That could have been for some kind of financial gain, but probably it was for some kind of personal power or prestige. Look at me. Look how smart I am. Don't you want to be in this club? We'll see in in chapter 3 that Paul will give very specific instructions on how to handle those who persist in in this kind of factious, divisive behavior. Then Paul addresses the particular culture of the Cretans, and he quotes one of their own prophets who says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Doesn't Paul know you can't say things like that? Paul's quoting one of their poets, their prophets. Paul agrees with this assessment of the culture, which is not unlike our own culture. We, too, must be able to assess and speak to the sins of our culture and do what Paul tells Titus and the elders to do, which is listen. Verse 13 and 14. Therefore, since this is true of these Cretans, Cretans, since this is true of our culture, Therefore, rebuke them gently. No, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. We're in another place. Paul says, um, if... um, If an angel from heaven preaches another gospel, let him be anathema. Let him go to hell. That's how strong the language is. The gospel is critical. If we start messing with that, if we lose sight of that, that's the danger. The church has suffered from those who deny the authority of God's word, liberals, and it has suffered just as much from those trying to be nicer than God 
That's strong in our evangelical world. And we often want to make sure no one is ever offended, and so we sell the truth, we compromise where we shouldn't, and in so doing, we subvert the gospel. Now, your manner, my manner, ought not be offensive, but the truth is offensive. It offends me. When I'm being disobedient and unbelieving, it offends me. And so this section reminds us of what Paul wrote to one of his other spiritual sons, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. And my brain finally kicked back in. It was Lois and Eunice, sorry about that earlier, who taught Timothy some of these things. But here's, as Paul is getting ready to leave this world, in his last will and testament, his last letter, he writes to his son Timothy, and this is his charge, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, every human being, at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Cultural ups and downs, doesn't matter what's going on. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching For a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your service, your ministry. Doctrine and discipline are essential for every well-ordered household, According, and, and that includes the household of God. At the heart of this is the protection of the truth, the truth which accords with godliness. When people insist on perverting, twisting, or denying the truth, when people insist on doing their own thing, when they undermine either the truth or the peace of the church, the elders must Stop their mouths and must rebuke them sharply. And if need be, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5.13, put away from yourselves the evil person. This first chapter ends with some important theological insights. Verse 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure but even their minds and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God but in works they deny him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. The expression all things is best explained by Paul himself. It amounts to, according to 1 Timothy 5.5, every creature of God, that is, everything that was created by God for consumption as food. It is not the impure things that make men impure, as the Jews erroneously held, but it is impure men who make everything else that's pure, impure. I want to note that this can be and often is done with many things other than food, but food sometimes seems to be a commonplace where this shows up. Anytime the external things become a sign of your virtue, there is trouble. Oh, I never do this or that. 
I only eat this or that. Now, it's perfectly okay for you to only eat this or that. There's all kinds of good reasons for that. Dietary restrictions, but personal virtue is not one of them. For the Judaizers, unclean food made unclean people. You see, even nature can be turned into a fallacy and an idol. The natural man and the natural world, oh, it's natural, it must be good. Well, wait a minute. Natural men aren't good. And the Bible tells us nature is fallen and broken. Be careful. Be careful. Scripture tells us that defiled people make everything else unclean. On the other hand, pure men are those who have been cleansed from their guilt by the blood of Christ and having been regenerated by the Holy Spirit are being constantly cleansed by the same Spirit from the pollution of their sins. These are the ones that do not reject what God has created. Paul expands on this problem, which is widespread, when he writes to Pastor Timothy at Ephesus, warning him of those who are, quote, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Now, if, now, now, it was true that in this case, God had revealed himself to the Jewish forefathers in a special way as to no other nation. But instead of realizing that greater opportunity implies greater responsibility, especially with respect to those who don't know God, they had become boastful and had completely rejected the Messiah. Hence, Paul is able to assert that Though these Jews profess to know God, yet by their actions they denied him. As the Lord says through Jeremiah, though they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. We are all tempted to create our own checklist of virtues that can easily supplant the gospel of pure grace. If we can eat the right foods, drink the right drinks, acquire the right curriculum, read the right books, wear the right clothes, pay the tithe on mint, cumin, and anise, then we can make ourselves and maybe our children pure. But now, as Jesus said, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. In other words, there are a lot of things that are pure and good for you, but we must be on the lookout lest we defile the good things by turning them into something that is added to the gospel. I've seen many churches rent asunder by these kinds of things. The devil loves to tell lies in small degrees, perverting the truth, and causing destruction because bad hearts defile good things. Jeremiah 6.20, God said, Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet to me. Isaiah, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats, 
When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. And Amos, chapter 5, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. Why? Because God demands more. The problem in the garden was that Adam and Eve, like Satan, wanted to be their own gods and do it their way. But we are people of the faithful word, and it must be held fast, tight, hard. When we depart from it, either by adding to it or compromising it, we have become completely incapable of performing any good work that proceeds from faith. Sanctification in congregational life, indeed utmost in the Apostle's mind as he pens this letter, and this is clear from the reason which he gives showing why men so highly qualified for office are especially necessary for these churches. Neither Titus nor the elders that he was to appoint nor any other elders are to compromise or soften Paul's hard line. Why? Because he loves Jesus and he loves the church. These are hard words. They are necessary words. Applying this takes courage and remembering God cannot lie. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks directly and bluntly and truthfully and tells us the truth about you and about us and about sin and about truth and about lies and what happens. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we might take all these things to heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, But as many as received him, as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness to him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Grace without truth is simply sappy sentimentalism. Live and let live. That's the American slogan. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. I'll approve of what you want to do. You approve of what I want to do. Don't ever question me. Don't ever challenge me. Surely don't judge me. 
Don't judge me. Anything goes, right? Truth without grace, though, is cruel and crushing. Grace and truth strike the right balance in us and in the church. Zechariah 8.19 says that we are to love truth and peace. Ephesians 4.15 says we are to speak the truth in love. And so we must guard the truth at all costs, and and that same truth should always accord with godliness, which means that it is always full of of grace. Acts 20:32 So now brethren I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Amen.